Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our text for today, the Old Testament lesson, Jonah, the third chapter, in particular verse 1, and then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh. This is our text, dear friends in Christ. Note well how that text begins. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That means there was a first time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. A first time that it came, Jonah responded by saying, Lord, no, I'm not going to go. A first time when God called him to go to Nineveh and to preach its destruction, but Jonah took off in the opposite direction as fast as he could go and as far away as he could go, even on to the distant city of the ancient world called Tarshish. A flight of fear on the sea, interrupted by a most horrific experience as this fleeing prophet finds himself suddenly by the sailors on board, tossed overboard. And then with seaweed wrapped about his neck, he who had been fleeing from God suddenly finds himself crying out to God from all places, from the belly of a dog gadol in the Hebrew, a great fish, prepared especially by the Lord to retrieve this reluctant prophet. Reluctant indeed. And now he's in a reverse course going the other way. One moment he's running from God and the next moment he's desperately seeking God out. Jonah, what's it going to be? Are you running to God or are you running away from God? Do you want God beside you and with you or do you want to be as far away from him as you can get? It's a question for us all, isn't it? Because you see, Jonah is exactly like all of us, no different than we are. He's doing what we all left to ourselves would, by nature, do, run from God rather than run to him until we've so messed things up that we return to him as a last resort. Return to him only because he has first then sought us out and found us and then we speak to him. You see, man by nature, and scripture makes this abundantly clear, man by nature runs from God because... That's the way that it is with us all. And so scripture says that, as the poet Henley put it, that we want to be masters of our own fate, Henley said. We want to be captains of our own souls. And St. Paul quotes that God-inspired psalmist, and he says without any kind of equivocation, he says, there is none who is righteous, there's not even one, there is none who seeks after God. All, he says, have turned aside. And it's as though he would echo the prophet Isaiah, who says, We all like sheep, Lord, have gone astray, each to his own way, running here, running there, just like Jonah of old, running away from God, doing our own thing as long as we can get by with it. Many in our day are even running like fools from God's reality evidenced by the swelling tide of an aggressive atheism that has made itself abrasively apparent, especially during the last couple of years, 
not only in our country, but even before that, certainly in England. In England today, it's said that 35% and more are outright atheists. Not just here in our country and the well-publicized attempts to remove any notion of deity from coins and courthouses and from inaugurations or by judicial rulings that are now even forbidding the benign moment of silence. Not a prayer, but even silence at the beginning of a school day as a an Illinois judge ruled this past week. But an even more aggressive atheism, an atheism whose frontal attack on religion is the subject of best-selling books like The End of Faith by Sam Harris or The God Delusion by the British scientist Richard Dawkins or Breaking the Spell by Daniel Dennett or God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything by Christopher Hitchens. And those are but a few of the books that are aggressively attacking not just the Christian faith, but the whole concept and idea of a God. Each of these men writing these books, running away from God by substituting their pseudoscience as his reality, a reality which will become undeniable for all of them in due time. But you know, Jonah wasn't a Harris. Jonah wasn't a Hitchens, a Dennett, or a Dawkins, a fool who says in his heart there is no God. Jonah was a prophet of God, a prophet running away, a prophet to whom Scripture says the word of the Lord came. That's a certain designated phrase that's so often applied to a prophet. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against it for their wickedness has come out against me. Jonah was, you see, again. But you and I are. Jonah was a believer. Jonah was a son of God. Jonah was a son of God's grace who was called by God to do something that he'd rather not do, to cry out against the wickedness of his generation in the unsympathetic city of Nineveh, one of the greatest capitals of the greatest empires of his time. Jonah was, after all, what his name defined him to be. And that's why he wasn't eager to do what God was calling him to do. You know what the name Jonah means? In the Hebrew, the word Jonah means dove. It describes the character of the man. Jonah was as gentle as a dove, being called to do what one might expect a, a lion of a man to do. And here this dove of a man is being called to do it, a rather passive prophet, a passive prophet, though, who was in the hands of a mighty God. A passive prophet who was in the hands of an active God. A God who was determined to work through a Jonah, through a dove kind of a man, to bring his word of judgment and then of peace, of law and of gospel, to a city-state whose wickedness had put it at odds with God, and those odds are never good. But as we've heard, Jonah fled from that task in fear. And so what does God do? Does God dismiss Jonah from the task because of his reluctance and because of his resistance? No. God's determined. And thus he pursues this passive prophet in order to work his wonders through the least likely of men. Sound familiar? Sound at all like you? To be sure, we're not the prophets of God, but we are the people of God. 
We are, St. Peter tells us, a royal priesthood called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, called in our generation to confess his word in a world whose wickedness equals and even surpasses that of ancient Nineveh, a world which for us is as intimidating as Nineveh was at first to Jonah, a world as blind to the ways of God and as deaf to the word of God and as dead to the life of God as Nineveh of, of old ever was. And it's not just hostile strangers that are about us as they were for Jonah. It's not just a social structure of secular humanism out there that's at odds with God. It's often family members. It's often friends and colleagues and co-workers and neighbors, those that are much closer to us than the Ninevites were to Jonah. So many wanting nothing at all to do with God, the God of Scripture, because he will have nothing to do with the gods of their making. The gods that people so often make conveniently in their own image that they might be the captains of their own souls, the masters of their fate. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul in today's epistle lesson has a sense of urgency about him that he has? Did you note as that was read this morning, the sense of urgency that Paul has? After all, he, the, the appointed time, he says, has grown very short. The present form of this world is passing away. A note of urgency about the task. It's coming to an end, Paul is saying. So live as though it were, he says. Live with that sense of urgency in the time that God gives you here. That same sense of urgency voiced in the first chapter of Mark of our Gospel reading for today that reports that Jesus was coming into Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here, the urgency. Repent and believe the Gospel. It's right here in Christ. You sense the urgency in his words, an urgency embedded in a specific word that's used by St. Mark nine times in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark do we find the Greek word euthos. Immediately, straight away, immediately Jesus called them. Immediately they followed him. Immediately, immediately. Sense of immediacy, sense of urgency in the action that was taking place, even a sense of urgency in Nineveh that we heard in the Old Testament lesson, because 40 days, 40 days you have, repent, or destruction will come upon the city. Repent, for the whole city would be nafak in the Hebrew, flattened out like a bed. It'll be overthrown. You see, be it the Old Testament reading of Jonah, be it the epistle lesson of St. Paul, be it the Holy Gospel today of St. Mark, the message of God's word for us this morning is one and the same in each and every one of them. There's a limit to God's patience. The limit is soon to be reached. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the message that Jonah, the reluctant prophet, finally proclaimed in the metropolis of Nineveh after he'd been coughed up on its shores by that great fish that God had prepared to swallow him. The three-day ride that he had had in the belly of that aquatic creature wasn't a ride that he wanted repeated again. 
And so preferring the three days in the streets of Nineveh to three days in the belly of that preacher again and confident that the Lord who had delivered him from the dangers of the depths of the sea would also deliver him from the dangers of the streets of Nineveh, Jonah perhaps smelling like the fish from whence he had come, Jonah bleached by that fish's gastric juices to look like a specter, especially among those olive-skinned throngs of Nineveh, Jonah takes to Nineveh's streets and he proclaims for all to hear, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And you know what happened? In the days to come, from the poorest of homes in the most humble of houses to the most opulent mansions of the rich and the famous and to the very courts of the king himself, all of the fine robes were laid aside for sackcloth and ashes. And all of the fine food of feasting was exchanged for a solemn fast, and the ruckus of their revelry gave way to the remorse and to the repentance of faith from the greatest of them to the least of them, the scriptures say. And the word of God, proclaimed by a reluctant prophet, does what only the word of God can do. It brings that whole city to its knees in faith. Jonah's preaching had done in three days what Noah's preaching hadn't done in 120 years. Indeed, he was, to be sure, the most successful preacher, perhaps, of all homiletic history. And that's indeed the way that God would have it be with his word. That's the way that God would have his word received, not only by Nineveh, but in every city and nation all around the world, in our nation, from sea to shining sea, from Nantucket and New York in the east to San Francisco and San Jose in the west, that's the way that God would have his word be. That's the way that he would have it received. But that's not the way that it always is, is it? It's not that way for us. It wasn't that way for the prophets who came before Jonah or those who came after him. Men, scripture says, who were stoned, Men who were sawn in two, scripture says. Men who were killed with a sword and afflicted and ill-treated. Men whom, of whom the world was not worthy. Indeed, it wasn't that way for the prophet's prophet. It wasn't that way for our Lord Jesus Christ himself when he came unto Jerusalem. In fact, standing in the presence of the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem who wanted him to perform more signs and more miracles that he to prove that he was indeed the Christ that he claimed to be, what was it that Jesus said to them? Listen to these words. Jesus said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation craves for more and more signs. And yet, no sign shall be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea creature, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he adds this most interesting sentence, and he says, At the judgment, the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation, and they shall condemn this generation, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Something greater than Jonah was indeed there standing before those people 
In our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ was their God in the flesh, standing right there in front of them whom they were addressing. He had come to his own, but his own would not receive him. Someone far greater than Jonah the prophet was there because Jonah could only preach, but the one greater than Jonah had come in the flesh indeed to save them. To save Jonah, to save the Ninevites, to save the Israelites, to redeem every evil and adulterous generation that had ever come before Jonah and would ever come after Jonah. To die for the sins even of Jerusalem. The one greater than Jonah who had come to be the sacrifice for the sins of all the world. A final note. Remember that I said earlier that Jonah was an Old Testament type of Christ. He wasn't the real thing, he wasn't the real Christ, but he was an Old Testament prefigurement or a type of the real thing. An Old Testament figure who, through the events of his life, would in one way or the other represent the Christ who was to come. Keeping that in mind, take note of this. Why was Jonah three days and three nights in the belly of the fish? Because scripture tells us he was there, as it were, as a, a sacrifice of those who threw him overboard. Pick me up, Jonah told them, throw me into the sea. The sea will then become calm for you, he said. And they did. And it did. They picked up Jonah, scripture says, they threw him into the sea. And the sea stopped its raging. But the one far greater than Jonah, the one for whom Jonah was but the type, is the greater sacrifice by far, the greatest sacrifice ever, the perfectly innocent one. At that, Jonah, remember, was tossed into the depths of the sea as a consequence of his own sin against God. Jesus Christ, without any sin of his own, is cast into the depths of death because he willingly bears in his holy body and soul the sins of all the world. Something greater than Jonah is also here, dear friends. He's still here today. He's here with us not in great miracles of visibility demanded by every faithless generation. No, he refused to play that game with the scribes and the Pharisees and he won't play it with the skeptics of our generation either. He's here where he said he would be today, where the world won't see him. He's here in the word that is preached to you. He is here in the baptismal waters that flow over you and your children. He is here in his holy body and blood that is offered to you. This is where he has promised to be. Someone far greater then Jonah is right here among us, doing for us what he did for Jonah in days of old, doing for us what he did for St. Paul, doing for us what he did for the apostles that he called to follow him, doing for us what he's done for all of the saints throughout all of the ages, creating and sustaining faith within us that we might join all of those who have gone before us in confessing him before all of the world and before every nation. And that's why we will yet sing today we are called to stand together with the saints of ages past, with the patriarchs and prophets and the faith they once held fast, promises and hopes they treasured now we find fulfilled at last. To each coming generation, tell the truth, persuade, explain, till the time when time is ended, till the Savior comes again. 
till the saints are all united under Christ's eternal reign. God grant it to us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.